This message first aired on the radio on October 1st, 2003. We have the scriptures in front of us. We're in the height. We're studying the height of the zenith of the kingdom of Israel. That's where we are in our study as we look through the different dispensations of God. We're taking our time through this dispensation, trying to hit the high points and trying to drill down a little bit on the principles that we find therein. And uh, as we do it, I'll remind you that in every dispensation of God, we find two things always. We find the faithfulness of God, and we find the failure of man. And now we're in the at the zenith, the height of the nation of Israel, and we're going to find the failure of man in, in an extensive way. And as it so happens, we're going to be studying a little bit about tax, about taxation, and an aspect of it as we look through this dispensation of law. Because one of the things that's happening to Israel at the time of Solomon is that they're put at being put under significant taxing. They're being put, not only is the wealth of the nation Israel growing, but the government of Israel is also growing. Solomon has done what, what God said kings would do. He takes of the best of the men of the children of Israel, he takes all their best things, and he lays taxes on the people to pay for his grand efforts. Now, the house of God is a grand effort, and there is a taxation upon the people to, uh, to pay for that, but it has a greater benefit than it does have a cost. But do you think that for one minute that after those people that he used, including Hiram and so forth, to build the house of God, do you think he just sent those people home and said, well, that tax that we've placed on you now that this is built, that tax is finished? Of course not. He maintained the taxes and built his own house. And Solomon took took seven years to build the temple, but he took 13 years to build his own house, nearly twice as much. And, of course, the number 13 is significant because while he's building his own house, he's rebelling against God. And let me ask you, my friend, are you? I say, are you rebelling against God? Well, let me say this. Are you busy with your own house? And what about the house of God, my Christian friend, which is the church of the living God, which is, by the way, the pillar and support of the truth? And we have a whole book of Scripture. Uh, it's later. We're coming to it. We probably will skip right past it, but I'll do it in reference. There's a whole book of Scripture written about what it was about the children of Israel that paid attention to their own houses and paid no attention to the house of God. That's the book of Haggai. And it's one of the conditions of the children of Israel. But of course, that's not the case with Solomon. He, he paid very much attention to the house of God. And he did this when he was small in his own sight. And just to show you his spiritual decline, let's retrace a few things that, things that Solomon said at the time of the dedication, at the time of the dedication of the temple. A few of the things he said that demonstrate his fall between, say, 1 Kings chapter 8 and 1 Kings chapter 11, which uh, was not much time at all. Maybe it was 12 years, or maybe it was even 15 years, but it, but it was not all that much time. But it was a very, very large fall. And it's important for us when we see how men fail, that when we see men fail, excuse me, like Solomon, that we see how they fail. Because you can learn from your mistakes, but if you have to make all your own mistakes, you're not going to learn much. You're going to be busy 
with your mistakes. You can also learn from the mistakes of others. And here's the wonder, one wonderful thing about the Bible. The Bible does not cover up the blemishes of God's people about whom it is written in substantial part. In fact, the Bible is a God-breathed editing of the failures of man stuck into one compendium so that all we need to know about failing and how we do it has been recorded in the Scripture. And two things, as we study through the dispensations, the two things that jump out at us and are obvious is that all that we need to know about man's failure is written in this book, and all that we need to know about God's faithfulness is also written in this book. So those are the two things we're going to look at here. We're going to look at uh, Solomon's failure and God's faithfulness. So yesterday we discussed how it was that when Solomon built the temple and he got all this work done, it was all in place, that God answered his efforts and the efforts of the people of uh, the children of Israel by visiting the Shekinah glory, the visible glory of God on that temple. Then Solomon began to speak to the children of Israel and he began to tell the truth about himself, his history, how it was in the heart of David to build a house for the Lord, Jehovah, and how it was in the heart of Jehovah to make a house for David, and that David would not lack someone to sit on the throne as God had promised. And then uh, also the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the house, and Solomon now says also this as he stands with his hands up toward heaven, and he's before the altar. Of course, he can't go beyond. He's not the high priest, and he can't go beyond that. And he said this, Lord God of Israel, and he addresses he addresses God personally here, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keeps covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David my father that thou hast promised him. Thou spake also with thy mouth, and thou hast fulfilled it, with thine hand, as it is this day. And so Solomon is a witness, and so are all the children of Israel, that God keeps his word. You never have to worry about God keeping his word, and you're, you should, ought to be careful about your own word, because you know what, what a promise breaker you are. When an organization is started, such as Promise Keepers, first of all, it should it should be named Promise Keeper. And that way, we'll know how many will be able to enter into that organization. There's just one promise keeper, and that's God. The organization that needs to be started for the rest of us is the promise breakers. And maybe I'll start that. What should the dues be? I'm taking, you can go on the website, www.biblestudy.net, and you give your recommendation for the dues that we should charge for the promise breakers. And uh, maybe, maybe there should be penalties for each promise we break. And then, I don't know, do we Maybe we do like the government does, and we just say everybody's in the organization, and you have to opt out. You have to opt out. Just a few suggestions, but I'd like to hear yours also. Go ahead and give me those recommendations, and we'll start up the Promise Breakers, and uh, I'm in. Count me in. I'll be what's known as a charter member. Well, so here's Solomon saying God is the great promise keeper. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, and they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father, 
Now here's a good question. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded? Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant. So he says, now the heaven of heavens can't contain you. So how is it that you can dwell in this house? Well, that's a a wonderful question. Uh, I don't know that the answer is evident. Certainly not evident to me. But how God manages to dwell in his house, his own house, that's his problem because he does. Today, the church of God, which is not some building, it's not a structure, the structure of this temple here is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and of things to come. All these structures have been done away in the, in the dispensation in which we live because today God is building a structure without hands, unapparent, in the heavens, the church which is his body. Now, how does God dwell in the church which is his body? Well, he does. And he makes himself evident there. They that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And there is a truth concerning the church, which is his body. And what evidence do you want to to see? Well, you can see the graceful behavior of one member toward another, taking care of and looking after another, just like any body on earth. And thereby you know that there must be an, an invisible head coordinating those movements. And I trust you can see that. Uh, But what there is to be seen of that is to be seen in the love that Christians have one toward another. Well, now, here's Solomon, spiritually minded, acknowledging God's faithfulness. And then he gives instruction in his prayers. And some of these things are going to happen to the nation of Israel. So it's important for us to look at some of the things that he says in his prayers here because they're prophetic. It says, uh, verse 28, I'm in First Kings chapter 8, verse 28, that Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant, and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry, and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house, night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place, and hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and the people of Israel when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. So later we will see Daniel, for example, praying in the direction of the temple, even though the the temple at that time is destroyed and so forth. If any man trespass against his neighbor, an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and do judge thy servants condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. Here Solomon is actually praying his own doom. He is saying, if the wicked come into this house, bring the way of the wicked on to his own head. So some of these things Uh, are unpleasant, what he says. Now he says in verse 35, When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place, and confess thy name, and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk, and give rain upon thy land. So here now, Solomon is even telling God, asking God, that when the nation of Israel sins and turns away from him, stop up the heavens. Elijah prays this prayer later, and we'll be looking at the life of Elijah. But when he prays a prayer that it wouldn't rain, except by his word it did not rain for the space of three years and six months. 
And so here there are many judgments for unfaithfulness that Solomon prays for. He said, uh, for example, again, he says, If thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house that I built for thy name, then hear in heaven their prayer, and cause their supplicate, maintain their cause, and hear their supplication. If they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not. So here you have Romans, the book of Romans, right here in 1 Kings eight forty six. You have all have sinned and come short of the glory of God right here, for there is no man that sins not. And if a man sins against you, or if they sin against you, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. And so Solomon knows that when Israel sins against God in a certain way, that he will carry them off into captivity. He knows that. Verse 47, Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land, whither they were carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned, and have done perversely, and committed wickedness, so return unto thee with all their and so return unto thee with all their heart, and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I built for thy name, then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, and maintain their cause. And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee. So this is going to happen to Israel, and let me tell you that never has Israel repented from its rejection of God. And so there remains, really, there remains the Jewish diaspora, there remains the spreading out of the nation Israel throughout the world in rejection in the lands, some in the land of their friends, most in the land of their enemies. This now Solomon praying against his own self, and what a pity it is when we see his decline, which we'll look in some detail when we come back after this brief interlude. So Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and garments, and armor, and spices, horses, and mules, a rate year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots, and twelve thousand horsemen, and he bestowed it in the cities for chariots, and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem like stones, that's a hyperbole, and cedars he made to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. In other words, he had beautiful wood as if it were more or less bramble. That's actually a mulberry tree, kind of a useless tree there. But instead of that, he had cedars, like someone else would have mulberries, mulberry trees. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen. Or actually, the way it should read here is he had horses coming out of Egypt like linen string. A constant stream of horses. And you remember what it said in Deuteronomy 17. We read it yesterday that a king would, when if he increased horses, if he increased women, if he increased his wealth, that he would then turn from God and he would turn to false gods. And that is the downfall of Solomon, and that is the downfall of you. You say, well, you're repeating yourself. Well, I need to repeat myself. Sex, money, and power is what gets us. 
Sex, money, and power is what got Solomon. Weapons, wealth, and women is another way of putting it. We say sex, money, and power. We People used to say, some said wine, women, and song. That's not it. Wealth, women, and weapons. That's it. And that's what got Solomon. So Solomon loved many strange women. We looked at this yesterday. 700 wives, 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women. And his wives turned away his heart. Now, we can talk about multiple wives turning away a man's heart, but even one wife can turn away your heart, my brother. You are intended to lead your wife. The head of every woman is the husband, right? You're the head. And with the head, the head means the leader. When a woman leads a man, she will lead him astray. No matter how good she is, no matter how nice she is, she is not built to lead, and when a woman leads a man, she will lead him astray. God never intended for a woman to lead a man. He intended for a man to lead a woman. And these outlandish women, as they multiplied, led Solomon astray. Now, my brother, I say this to you because you are responsible to lead that wife. Don't be blaming her. If she's leading you, that's your fault. That's not her fault. That's your fault. And when you're astray, don't tell me your wife led you. Please excuse me, sir, I have found a wife. That's the lame excuse of a man led astray because he failed to lead. And that's maybe why others have called Solomon a panty waste. But anyway, it wasn't merely that his heart grew cold. And let me tell you something about the Christian life or the life of faith. If you're not going in the life of faith, you are going in the life of sin. All that does not proceed from faith is sin. So don't think you can put it in neutral and somehow stay where you are. You're either walking by faith or you are walking by sin. And this is what Solomon did. It tells us, It came to pass when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And don't think when you're an old man, don't think if you live foolishly while you're a young man and you live foolishly while you're a middle-aged man, that when you're an old man, you won't be one of two kinds of old men, the two kinds of worst old men. What are those two kinds? A foolish old man, or even worse, a wicked old man, or both a foolish and wicked man. And that's what Solomon ended up being. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, remember those were foreign wives, which burned incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And here's the principle, my friend. Evil spreads and good does not. Solomon married all these foreign women with their strange religion. And maybe you married a woman that's not. Maybe, brother, you find yourself with a woman who's not a Christian. Well, if she's happy to abide with you, well, don't leave her. But what are you doing marrying an unsaved woman? And uh, what are you doing letting your children and even directing your children to date and to marry unsaved women? I could go on. I probably will go on. I've had so many friends 
come to me with their excuses and reasons why it is that they tolerated and approved of their children marrying unsaved spouses, women or men, who don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they have all kinds of good reasons for it. Well, evil spreads, good does not. And so if you take a bad apple, stick it with a good apple, what do you end up with? You end up with two rotten apples. Now, if you take one good apple and stick it with a thousand bad apples, you end up with 1,001 bad apples. You say, well, that's not a lot of damage. Well, it is if it's the king of Israel, that one apple, and that's what we have on our hands here, a lot of damage. Solomon took that which God gave him and prostituted it for false gods. This is abundantly wicked. Now, what is the number one form of uh, idolatry in that day? Was it Chemosh? Was it Molech? Was it Ashtoreth of the Zidonians? Was it Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites? Well, maybe that was a controversy in that day. But I'll assure you there's no controversy today with the number one form of idolatry that God's people are in today is is very easy to identify. It is covetousness. Covetousness, which is idolatry, is the number one form of idolatry. And women and wealth and weapons have increased, and the idolatry among God's people now is abundant. So we have a few lessons here. We can see what happens to God's people. They become, uh, when they get involved in uh, wealth, women, and weapons, they don't walk a life of faith. You see what happens. They turn to some form of idolatry. And it tells us here this, verse 9, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Now I want to tell you something. You are a friend of God if you do what he says. If you do not do what God tells you, you are not his friend. And more than that, while God still loves you, he's angry with you. And the anger of God burns. The anger of God is severe. Is severe. And sure, this is an anthropomorphism to an extent. We understand God in our own, we understand God in our own terms. But let me tell you, this word here used for the anger of the Lord only applies to God's kind of anger. God has a kind of anger that is not wrathful like man. God has a kind of anger that is only right. Now, we can have anger that is right, and we can have anger that is wrong. And we need to be careful, because anger, wrong anger can be addictive. But the inability to get angry, the inability to show righteous indignation, is the characteristic of a demoralized person. You are demoralized if you cannot get angry with evil. God gives us that proper anger that he himself has when we come across that which is evil. And so God's angry with Solomon, and he ought to be. And when we read this, we can understand why, and we can even feel the reason for his anger. Every father should be able to have anger with a disobedient son, for example. And when you get stirred up in it, now you need to to make sure that in your anger you don't sin, but in your anger you need to be angry. And that's one of the problems we have today. We sit back and tolerate everything. Tolerance, 
has been promoted to us as a characteristic in the place of every form of proper righteous indignation. Well, what does God do? He says what he's going to do. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, in verse 11 of 1 Kings 11, Forasmuch as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely tear the kingdom from thee, and I will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I'll rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all, rend away all the kingdom, but give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. And so God leaves, as promised, to give one tribe to the house of David to keep. This will be actually the tribe of Judah, a portion of Benjamin, which will be included. And we can see that detail a bit later. But essentially, he's going to leave Judah with the house of David, but God is going to see to it that Israel is torn away from the house of of Solomon. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. Very interesting, by the way, because the way this actually can read is the Lord stirred up a Satan unto Solomon. Now, I don't say that there are many, that Satan as a person is many. There's only one Satan as a person, Lucifer, fallen angel angel of great might. He's our arch enemy. He's the leader of those who oppose God, those wicked spirits who oppose God. But he's an adversary. That's the word, the name Satan, the word Satan means adversary. In a general sense, it can mean any adversary. In the specific, the adversary, it means Satan himself. And the adversary to Solomon is said to be Hadad the Edomite. But now we know, for for example, in the day in which we live, according to the scriptural teaching which we have learned, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against wicked spirits in the heavenly places. But these wicked spirits move men on earth, and they move governments on earth. And they move governments in a very dramatic and a very specific way. And my friend, if you're listening to me, and uh, maybe you're an American citizen and you're listening to me, whether you're listening on the Internet, you're not an American citizen, I can assure you that in your own country, wicked spirits are trying to overthrow and destroy your government. In our country, wicked spirits are moving wicked men to destroy our government. And God allows that to happen according to the unfaithfulness of the people and the leaders. We get the leaders we deserve, and the leaders bring to us the punishment for their own actions back upon us. And that's what Solomon did, and Solomon did more to destroy Israel than he ever did to build it up. His 20 years of building the house of God in his own house had nothing near the impact of the building of these high places, the false gods that he did for his, for his strange wives in his old age foolishness. And so the Lord steers up, and remember that Solomon had a, a lifetime of peace. In fact, he told Hiram... God didn't give my father peace. Remember, the sword didn't depart from the house of David until David departed from the house of David. Even then, there was a little bit of time where it didn't, where Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, had to fall on all those guys to take care of them. But Solomon had great peace his whole life. He was able to do this building. He was able to establish all of the things he established. 
He was free to go study the birds and the fowls of the air and the trees. They'd read all manner of books to have wisdom beyond anybody else in the whole world since or before. Uh, he was free for all of that. God gave him that because of the grace of uh, God's grace visited on David, who was a man after God's own heart. And what requite did Solomon bring? Well, probably about the same thing your son would do. So here, God raises up the Edomites, and he raises up Hadad of the Edomites to oppose Israel. And now Israel has a fellow who was preserved in Egypt, who Joab had done a great deal of damage in Edom. And it tells us that, verse 21 of 1 Kings 11, when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, and that Joab the captain, the host, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. And he goes up out of Egypt, and he becomes an adversary against Israel. And the Lord stirred up another adversary, Reason, the son of Eliadah, which, Eliadah, which fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men unto him, and became captain over a band when David slew them of Zobah. So all of a sudden, those who survived the wars of David now become enemies from the outside against Israel. And on the inside, it tells us, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite of Zereda, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. So now Solomon has an Ephraimite opponent on the inside, and he has two opponents on the outside, and here you have one of Ephraim who rises up against one of Judah and has a and picks a fight with Solomon. And it says, This was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo and repaired the breaches of the city of David his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man, that he, that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. And it came to pass at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him in the way and had clad himself with a new garment, and they two were alone in the field. And Ahijah, now this is Ahijah the Shilonite, who is a prophet. Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces and told Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I'll rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. And so this now is the division of Israel, which division has never since been healed. And we're going to look at this awful cause when we come back after this brief message. Well, this prophecy, no doubt heard by Solomon. In fact, we know it was heard by Solomon. God told Solomon this is what he's going to do. And God told Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah that he would give him ten pieces of Israel and that he would leave a tribe for the house of David, and that's going to be left with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. 
But here's the reason he gave. It says in 1 Kings 11.33, Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the son, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David his father. It says, But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand. I will give it unto thee, even ten tribes. This he says to Jeroboam through the prophet. And unto his son will I give one tribe that David my servant may have light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. Now, when this word comes to Solomon, it tells us in verse 40 that Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam arose, fled into Egypt, unto Shishak king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So that place that Solomon liked so much, Egypt, where he had his league and where he got his wife, that friendship that he thought he made. It ends up turning against him because it's just a place where his enemies are free to go and find shelter and wait and come back against him. And sure enough, that is exactly what Jeroboam did. And Jeroboam was stirred up against Solomon with enough power to get it done because Solomon was unlike his father David, where he would have turned to God and said, well, I'll be in your hands, but don't leave me in the hands of men. But instead, Solomon thought to kill Jeroboam and, in fact, created the very villain that he tried to destroy. And it tells us the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his stead. Now you may say, well, where's the book of the Acts of Solomon? I want to read that. Well, first thing, let me say this. First, read the Bible. You want to read something, read the Bible. Secondly, the book of the Acts of Solomon is the book of the register of the Acts of the Kings, including the Chronicles, and we're reading it. Now, here Solomon dies and was buried in the city of David, and here Rehoboam reigns in his stead. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve you. Here's what's happening. The people of the nation of Israel come to Rehoboam, and they say, Listen, your father put a heavy, heavy burden upon us. Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now this is the opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way. Today, we have a heavier yoke than Israel ever had put on us. This is the tax yoke. This is what they're talking about. Your father put heavy taxes on us. Look, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they were under a 20% tax. That's when they were slaves in Egypt. Solomon was probably approaching that. We are under way more than 20% taxes. In fact, the wicked thing that's happened this year, a very wicked thing, and, you know, we talked about righteous indignation, and I don't know what to do about it, but I think you should judge it wicked. It is wicked that in our state, 
we have elected starting this day to further taxes on men who work with their hands. Now, men who don't work with their hands or who don't lift a finger at all, such as attorneys in the state legislature, have seen to it, for example, to tax every single workman in the state of Nebraska who works with his hands. It is one of the most immoral things, by the way, that I can think of, as they exempt their own work from tax, but tax the work of other men. Not tax the working man, but actually tax their work. Now, it's true that I studied economics. I have to admit that every now and then. But what you do when you tax a thing is you dissent it. You disincent by taxation. That's what taxation is. And so what we've actually done is we disincent working. That is one of the most immoral societal things you can do, is to discourage working. Most preachers won't talk about that because most preachers don't work. So you get it right here, www.biblestudy.net. Now, these people come and say, look, your father put burdensome taxes on us. Ease up and we'll serve you. So you think this is an illegitimate offer? It's not. This is a real offer. Rehoboam could keep the kingdom together here. All he had to do was lessen the taxes. And he said in verse 5, Depart ye for three days, and come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived. And he said, How do you advise that he may answer this people? So first he goes to the old men. He says, You old men, what do you think I ought to do? And they spake unto him, saying, If you'll be a servant unto this people this day, and will serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then will they be thy servants forever. In other words, he said, serve their interest. Lower their taxes. Do what they say. If you'll do that now, they'll serve you forever, and you will win this people, and you need to win this people. That's what the old men tell him. But, but, but but he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. And I say there's no fool like an old fool. Well, there, there isn't in kind, but in number there is no way there are more fools than young fools. And so here now is Rehoboam turns to guys his own age. What a pathetic thing to do that is. You want to get bad advice, ask some young fella. They get the bad advice that way. And what do we do in our churches, by the way? Well, we get some young fella, and we tell all the young people to go ask him. Pathetic. And he said to them, the guys that grew up with him, What counsel give you that may we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And the young men that were grown up with him, who, by the way, all went to college and have university degrees because in the opulence of Solomon, everybody could get a degree. And if you couldn't earn one or study, you just got one by attending because Solomon built a university on every street corner and taxed the people for them and set up a public school system where 60% of the property taxes of the people supported them. And he said, Thus saith thou, Unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make it lighter on us. Thus shalt thou say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. 
you think my father was bad. Wait till you see me. My little finger is thicker than my father's quadriceps. And now whereas my father did lay you with a heavy yoke, I'm going to add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spoke to them of the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I'll chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel heard that the king didn't listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We don't have our inheritance in you. And so Israel departed unto their tents, and the state of Nebraska, oh, excuse me, and all of Israel was busted up because no one would pay attention to the wise counsel of the word of God. Now, a friend of mine, I did not make this up, nor did I arrange my message to cover this period of time, but there it is. And you know what the saddest part of this is? It's written in the Word of God. It's been in there for about 3,000 years for us to read, for us to take heed to. We had our ancestors that paid attention to this book, but nobody's paying attention to this book today. Nobody's paying attention to this book now. Nobody that is involved in this process is paying one speck of attention to the kind of a message that anybody, any simple person can give reading this book on this day. And woe to us, friends, we're in so much trouble because we're being led by Rehoboam and his buddies. It's not just here. It's not just here. Well, with that, I guess we just say Go Big Red, and we'll uh, close out with this wonderful song, knowing that we have a citizenship in heaven and a better inheritance than we have here below.